0: It doesn't take a full year of behavior for something to become a habit. And so it would actually be the opposite question. Will they break their online habit to go back in store? And what will stores do to try to have people break their online habit? I think that's where the conversation is, is, uh, is going now.
1: This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer brand and retailing industry and we have the great privilege here at my company Traub to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world and I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast, which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you obviously the listener. Welcome back to another episode of the Safari. And today I could not be happier to talk to my friend, uh, Che Huang, who is the founder and CEO of Boxed, who is, you know, frankly, one of the, the great geniuses around today in this space. He was also the CEO of Astro Ape, uh, which was a gaming company uh, which became part of Zynga. And that's a whole other story in itself. But today we're going to be talking about everything to do with Boxed and its meteoric rise and everything going on. So let's get started because he has a lot to say. Shay, it's good to see you. Thank you for joining me on the safari,
0: Morty. I am excited to be here, and for the next thirty minutes or so, we've taken over this podcast to become Shay and Morty's retail hot takes. Exactly. Uh, and so here we go. Here we go.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking at you right now. You are obviously in your facilities because I see all these red boxes and machines and conveyor belts. Tell tell us where you are.
0: Uh, so I'm sitting here in sunny New Jersey, uh, which actually. I joke all the time that it's tropical New Jersey. It's actually pretty nice today here. Uh, But I'm in one of our fulfillment centers and probably our most automated one. And so, um, you know, it is a pandemic, but I try my best to lead from the front and visit uh, the facilities every once in a while.
1: Good for you. So listen, I'm going to get right into it because there's so much to cover. You are a trained lawyer and then you became a gamer. You love comic books. I know that for a fact. But also you are now the CEO of this wonderful company, Box. So tell us a little bit in one minute that journey as to how you got here.
0: Oh, one minute. Uh, So legal career started on September 15, 2008, about nine hours after Lehman Brothers collapsed, uh, one block away uh, in the Morgan Stanley Building. Um, Learned uh, what happens when suddenly funding dries up and the world turns upside down. Um, So took those hard knocks and learned a lot during those years. um, Joined friends to start a gaming startup focused on this new thing called the iPhone 2G at Mm. the time. The iPhone didn't even have 3G yet. Um, Made the right bet there, uh, raised money, eventually acquired by Zynga, uh, went public with Zynga, uh, left after just about 2 years there, um, and went after what we felt like was going to be the biggest opportunity in mobile um, and online and that was mobile commerce with regards to CPG. And fast forward seven years here, Box.com in an automated facility. That is the last, oh gosh, like ten, twelve years of my life, Marty.
1: So tell us why you started Boxed. Uh, there was obviously a little bit of a, a, a gap in the market that you thought was something to jump into. So talk, talk about the genesis.
0: Um, genesis was, you know, from the consumer side. It's just that, you know, growing up in in suburban Jersey, you know, every other weekend, all the way back in the Price Club days, I remember. Like, we had someone, a family friend had a business that so we used their card to get into the price club uh, to buy in bulk. And, you know, I still remember we were the only family that did so on our street. And all the neighbors and friends would come over and just be like, what's this? You guys own a restaurant? Like, <laughs> like why, why is the cereal so gigantic? You know, now it's commonplace, but it certainly wasn't in like, you know, early 90s. Would yeah, um, you have a family so, of 10 people? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I always thought uh, uh, it was uh, the way to buy things, even as I, Lived in uh, a 300 square foot apartment in Manhattan, my first apartment in Manhattan. It was basically like a human kennel. Uh, I was still stocking up and asking my um, parents to drive in the toilet paper because it was just so expensive in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you couldn't buy bulk online. So, from a consumer perspective, that was painful. From a business perspective, though, it just boggled my mind that games and all these cutting, like social networks, they were all going towards mobile and online mm-hmm. um, but one of the biggest industries there is between food retail and cpg retail um, just really didn't see any online penetration at all and i just felt like that had to change uh, and that was the bet we made uh now seven years ago
1: and so much so that you've, you've also developed your own private label during that journey correct so tell us what that's called and, and how that's going
0: it's called uh prince and spring uh, and so the story behind that is uh, the second, third office we ever had. We got a screaming deal. We have no, we're not there anymore. We have no business being on that block, but we were on the corner of Prince and Green, uh, next door to LV. It was nuts. It was just like the landlord was like, "I want this, I want this space gone by the end of the day. If you sign the contract in 24 hours, I'll match what your old rent was in this other crappy building that was like mm-hmm. uh, uh, on the other side of on the on the other side of Soho." And so we signed it, and so we're there um, on Princeton Green. So we named our private brand Princeton Green. Uh, we got kind of the attorneys to file the trademark, and you know they're expensive. And so they came back and said, you know, we're going we're we're to save you the thousand dollar an hour fee, and we're going to say this is going to get denied. Um, and we're like, what are you talking about? Like Princeton Green is a wonderful name. And they were like, yeah, we think there might be a P and G already uh, <laughs> that may or may not sell product that you're about to sell. So we're like, okay, fair enough. Uh, So the other street is Princeton Spring. And anyone who's listening to this, who knows anything about New York, it's not a corner. Princeton Spring actually run parallel to each other. Uh, So that's why it's called Princeton Spring. Uh, But we saw everything from toilet paper to food products all under one banner. National brand equivalent, national brand better. Um, And it's been a wild ride. Um, uh, from that perspective to learn how to build a brand.
1: So tell me a a little bit about that because I've often sort of preached uh, sometimes to no listeners on this subject about, listen, anyone who has distribution and who has that power of distribution power, and some people have brand power uh, and and you have distribution power at a certain scale, that they have the ability to get margin and get peak interest by developing their own brands. And there are companies, you know, far larger than you who have not even tried to do that yet in different areas of the, in, of the industry. And so talk a little bit about the decision that day when you said, okay, you know, we have to make our, our own brands. We're now big enough and we can do this. What, tell, tell a little bit about the story about developing it and bringing it to life.
0: I, I think we were actually at this adolescent phase where we weren't yet that big, uh, and you know, by startup standards, of course. Yeah. And we weren't that small where we actually could get some of this stuff made. Um, you know, it was very difficult, uh, at least in the early days. Now they're wonderful partners. In the very early days, you could imagine some of these big CPG companies, like they're not onboarding new customers constantly. You know, some of them were like, "New customer? I don't even know where. What our who onboarding you, who are onboarding? Who you? Credit like.
1: risk? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah Like uh, you were in a garage a year ago. What? You know. <laughs> um, so it was very difficult. In early, early days, it was not only uh, a, a, a way to. Um, uh, kind of potentially uh, uh, grow margin, but more importantly, it was a way to fill white space. Yes, like we just had some manufacturers that we weren't direct with, didn't have a good supply chain on, and and we just needed to be able to say, hey, our customers want X. Um, if no one wants to do business with us, we still have X for sale. Um, over time now, though, it's more of a retention driver for us and margin. Uh, so meaning that what we find is that half of repeat customers, over half of repeat customers have a Princeton Spring item in their cart. Um, And then uh, beyond that, what you find is that once they buy a Princeton Spring product, um, 80% uh, will buy another one on a future shop. And so it's really that loyalty driver, but it also puts the the onus on us to make sure quality is is, is right. The minute we screw it up once, they're yeah. never coming back to the brand and box.
1: Yeah, so on that point, it's interesting. So, you, I presume if you screw it up once on any item, they 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 sort of have a question mark around other items. How many SKUs today carry the brand?
0: So a uh, little over a hundred SKUs uh, uh, today. So you know everything from you know, like I said before, toilet paper to uh, food food products and you know baking mixes, uh, all different things. And what's really interesting is that we don't do this kind of Amazon thing of juxtapositioning it right next to the national brand, it, we treat Princeton Spring like another brand. Yeah. So our team here has to fight for homepage space, has to fight for different kind of uh, uh, locations within the website, just like any other brand would be treated. And um, so you're never going to see us pin it against the national brand on purpose. So, um, so that's kind of how we've been, you know, that's how how we built the brand actually.
1: That's, that's interesting. And um, so we, we've actually been talking to a lot of um, big brands, big, big retailers who do have uh, private brands, uh, who do treat them as national brands. And so some of their customers, they don't actually know that you can't find it outside of Retailer X, who, are, who will remain nameless. But we've tried to convince them that, look, you have these incredible assets. They're, they're brands, and brands trade at different multiples. And so at some point, at some scale suddenly it makes sense to maybe bring the brand outside of the big, uh, outside of the big box. Have you ever thought about the, your brand coming out of, of Boxed?
0: I am so glad you brought up that point because when you sit on these earnings calls and you listen to some of the, the big retailers tout their private brands, and you do the math, you're like, these private brands are just as big as national brands, if not bigger in certain categories. And, you know, um, I, I'm not saying an activist investor should do something about this, but when you look when you think about it like that way, you're just like, "Wow, there is some some captive uh, 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 kind of value to unlock here if they actually spun it out." Um, you yeah, know, it yeah. would be I mean, a top three player in a lot of industries. You're you know?
1: absolutely right. So, so in this question, it's uh, let's call it a, a department store, mid market department store company that has all kinds of, of of private brands across all categories, and they do. I think, you know, in the soft goods space, up to 50% of their business is done in their own brands. Oh, wow. And if you spin that out, I said to them, you know, you have an Inditex, like a Zara, buried inside your yeah. stomach, and that company <laughs> trades at, you know, you know, many multiples of what you guys trade at. And, it's, 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 and by the way, it's not just math. I mean, it's, it's also about, you know, how the, the businesses treat themselves. So, you know, so maybe one day, one day uh, your brands will, will, will fly out of the nest, potentially. You know the thing is,
0: like, if we did it here in the U.S. and said, "Okay, Princeton Spring is going to get broken out and it's going to be on other people's shelves," it would certainly detract from our repeat behavior or or the retention of that of that traffic because again, they can then buy those products anywhere else. And next thing you know, folks are starting to undercut us on our own on our quote unquote own brand. It just creates a weird dynamic. But the world is so international these days um, that. Certainly, like, if, if the brand was valuable for other retailers around the world, you can kind of have your cake and eat it, too. And um, if we ever did that, I think that would probably be the first step versus seeing Prince and Spring on the, on the shelves of, of another warehouse club or, 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 or food retailer here in the
1: U.S. What's quite interesting about that, though, is that any brand, you know, frankly, any even house brand of of, of any retailer is so relatively small compared to what its reach would be if it were out of the box what's really interesting is that when we see a a house uh, a brand open inside of a multi-brand space but also have their own space outside this is a a mall example so it doesn't necessarily apply to to your private brand but it could maybe one day but the point is is that When that brand, if it's a good brand, opens inside the mall and it has a presence inside, let's say, a multi-brand, the multi-brand business upticks, even though it has a competitor in the store, because some people prefer to shop multi-brand versus mono-brand. So ultimately, it becomes a a billboard; it becomes a marketing engine. And so, if they see it out in the wild, they come back and buy it where they prefer to buy. So having it wherever the customer is is kind of interesting.
0: You know, I I I think one brand and one retailer that has done this quite well, I think, has been uh Loblaw, uh from yes, Canada, uh absolutely. with Joe Fresh.
1: Yes, yes. So Joe
0: Fresh, like you would never think, Oh my gosh, I love this soft line. Where'd you get it? At your local grocer. Thank you. Um, I but actually Joe Fresh has broken out, like, <laughs> you know, and they've had fits and starts here in the US, but like when you look at what it is and how big it could be in the US if they got it right. Like it you know, it could be very powerful and I uh, I'm actually rooting for them and and kind of tracking to see how, how well they're going to do here.
1: No question. I think that's such a good example. So look, we, we have so much to cover. So i want to jump on into another sort of category, which is culture. So culture to me is really one of the most important things that we try and focus on, um, whether it be the, cu- the culture of the brand communicated uh, to the consumer, the culture that we care about inside our companies uh, as management and as a, as a team. And um, we have that at Signature Brands and we have that at mana. And I think that it's, it's incredibly important to, to, to have culture be in the boardroom you know culture has always been sort of a soft thing you know that people talk about and not many people particularly maybe generations above care about it they talk about it but they don't really feel it and own it and to me culture in a company will take uh, everyone pulling on the same ore and you'll they'll everyone will go through walls if there's the right culture that that really empowers everybody you in i mean in so many different ways whether it be the rebate uh, on the pink tax uh, on feminine hygiene products uh, whether it's how you treat uh, your your employees and the education of their children or or, or other things that that revolve around social justice um, and beyond. you guys, I think, are just second to none. I mean, it's just so inspiring. So w- could you talk about how culture became um, root to your to your business?
0: Yeah, I, I you know it generally starts from the top um, uh, in setting the tone. Um, and, you know, coming from a working class family and then suddenly being almost pulled back in time to a time when, you know, uh, there's when, when my, my parents were, were working kind of a, a physical jobs for, 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 for not the biggest of wages. Um, after we started to get some scale, uh, when you walk into the fulfillment centers, you actually see um, uh, folks along that journey or in the same place of that journey along their own path through the American dream that my parents were on. Uh, call it twenty, twenty, thirty years ago, um, and so for me, I, I, di- I don't have a short memory when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, really making sure that I don't make the same mistakes that my parents' employers did early on, uh, and, and how they were treated, was something that was very high on my mind. Uh, not at, from a business person's perspective, but just as a human perspective. That's just you know, I just that's how I wanted to uh, be able to sleep at night. Yes. Um, from From there on, though, um, it's kind of taken hold in the sense that when it comes to fulfillment center, uh, the fulfillment center team, um, uh, as well as anyone else at the company, um, uh, you know, pushing the well-being and the kind of uh, upward social mobility of everyone in the company has been just so very, very well ingrained into the company. So much so that, you know, you talk about kind of in the boardroom or in the company, a lot of these things don't even need to be spoken anymore. People just know people just act a certain way like you're, you're not going to screw the fulfillment center employee like you don't even have to bring it up it's just not something we'll ever entertain um and we don't need a plaque on the wall to, to remind us of that of course we do but like it no one no one points at it It's like hey guys remember core value number five it just becomes so ingrained uh it's become good business though uh because the zeitgeist today is is social action uh um and so um, and we're just lucky that we were doing it before. quote unquote, it was the zeitgeist and before it was cool to do so.
1: We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the Safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses, in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the Safari. Yeah, so we studied over during the pandemic and, and oh, during the pandemic. During the lockdown, I should say, because yep. obviously we're still in the pandemic <laughs> at this recording. Um, and then after the lockdown was sort of maybe loosened somewhat, um, we we did these series of studies, and it was we studied 20 million uh, American consumers, and we were able to dissect you know many different parts of of what they uh, were doing based on an opted in survey that we we followed them through their sort of journeys online, and amazingly, the most searched. Uh, elements uh, through their journey was how are companies treating their employees? I mean, it was, like, it was like top five things, right? How are companies using PPP if they got it or if they opted in for it? And so the, the transparency of supply chain The transparency of companies doing anything, whether it's bringing products in from wherever and the provenance of those products, how were they made, how are the people being treated in the facilities where where they are are landed, how they distributed, became for for many companies actually a marketing tool. And some people, because the ones who did it best like you, it became sort of a a gift with purchase as it were, right?
0: You know, during the pandemic, it was no secret that it was, Getting frontline workers into stores, into fulfillment centers, was actually challenging for a lot of companies. No question, because um, people are like, "Yeah, I, I, I need a job, but like I I also need my help too." So, um, so you know, I just I I will never forget this. In that, the, the team here, uh, we saw virtually no decrease. Actually, we didn't see any decrease in our attendance rate um, uh, throughout the entire pandemic, and it was uh, uh, it, it was basically. To the credit of our policies, before of that, we don't just suddenly treat people well because we suddenly need them in a pandemic. Like the policies that we had, you know, they were in place even quote unquote when when the the, the balance of power didn't suddenly swing into the fulfillment center uh, teams kind of uh, um uh, side. And so when we told them we're going to try to keep them safe and we're going to do everything we can do to keep you safe, we had credibility. People said, yeah, well, thought it, yeah, they. You know, these guys say what they're going to do and they treat me like a part of the team. So, um, so why not, uh, l- let, me give it a try. And luckily we have been able to keep folks safe here, um, and we continue to do so. So, um, so it pays off.
1: So I'm very involved with Parsons and the new school and, you know, the new mm-hmm. school being one of the most well-regarded, uh, social justice, um, universities on the planet. And obviously Parsons being, you know, in the, in the, the business of design. Right? And when you put the two things together, it's kind of interesting. And, and you know, we always talk about you know, design in the boardroom, social justice in the boardroom. And as a company grows, and the bigger one is, you know, dealing with and having to address some of these topics, um, such as you know, having a strong point of view on a, maybe a political item or on a social justice item that comes up, um, it can get thorny, the bigger one gets with more investors if you're public maybe one day and and how you deal with these kind of issues at that level. have you seen um, a change within your company having to deal with some of these things, or have your policies at the foundation caused you to not have that issue as you grew?
0: so I'm really glad you brought this up because i don't I, you know i don't want to be i don't want to come off as as a as a fluff piece right in that sense that there is another side of this uh in the in one of the struggles that we've had over the years is that because we have been known as a uh uh, as a company that that treats their employees a certain way or uh, takes stances on the pink tax etc that um uh we we are in danger we have been in danger of attracting employees with a certain expectation that you know our mission is social justice first and profit second. Um, that's not the case, you of know? Course, yeah. And so for us, we had to put real guardrails around this. And actually in the interview process, I personally tell the interviewees that, hey, I just want you to know, like, you know, this is kind of how we operate and this is how we think about social justice here in, that, in the sense that the box overall commercial mission is first. Um, and if there are certain things that we are well positioned uh, to take a stance on because of what we do as a company, uh, as Box, um, then we should take a stance on that. So here's a great point. Um, I love pets. I love dogs. You won't see Box take a universal position uh, on the ASPCA. It's not because it's not a worthy cause, uh, but it's just what we do and how we do it and what our overall corporate mission is. We're not going to be able to influence that debate or, or that that conversation much. And so, so we have no business uh, being in that debate. Um, when it comes to the pink tax, though, we sell we sell a lot of feminine care products a year. Uh, we sell, you know, to primarily women, like, and that is something we can uh, set an example for the rest of the industry on. So, yeah, take a to point of really, view, yeah, yeah, exactly. Putting those guardrails up has been very important for us.
1: So um, moving from culture, which to me, as I said, is just so wonderful to see you excel at and lead, I should say. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some of the random fun facts of pandemic and then maybe the future uh, as we get over the halfway mark here. So uh, I remember you telling me uh, through this pandemic of some crazy statistics right, about human behavior, right, Uh, consumer insights based on the fact that you are right at the front line you are right in someone's pocket, mainly because they're using their cell phone uh, at any given moment to purchase through you and with you. Um so talk about maybe some of the fun stories that came out of this, whereby you know the 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 rocket ship sales of certain items um, that sort of made you chuckle in some instances and were just kind of uh, just interesting in others.
0: one of the the the, the, the craziest things I could imagine this year, uh, Of course, everyone knows about toilet paper. But for CPG items today to still be as hot as a sneaker drop somewhere, um, it's it's wild, man. Like meaning that we'll sell truckloads and truckloads of of disinfectant wipes in minutes. And so, um, literally, I I think they're more akin to to like kind of uh, hype stores these days uh, than anything else. Like whenever we get these trucks of, uh, of of kind of disinfectant products, but when you look at kind of Um, uh, like what we're selling these days and what's selling out. I never would have predicted it more earlier this year. Um, we basically went from toilet paper to baking goods and cooking ingredients. And then now we're firmly in disinfection, disinfectant land. but uh, man, it, it it has been pretty wild.
1: And there were some old favorites that that kept on coming back, right? Like I think you know Milano cookies, and and there was some uh, goldfish, and you know so you know the people were just sitting at home
0: <laughs> eating goldfish. Um, dude, like stuff that probably people on the on on uh, listening to this might not know, um, like cured meats, like Slim Jim, like you know these are things that you never would imagine, but you know, when people don't know the future of their own food security, you know, suddenly, like, shelf-stable foods that can last a long time become in vogue. Um, so, you know, luckily, I think we've caught up uh, with, back, with in-stock rates, and, you know, the, the supply chain in America has proven to be, uh, you know, rather durable. Um, uh, so luckily, it's not like we're in a dystopian future where everyone is eating uh, Slim Jim's for, for dinner, and that's it, you know? And so, but that was another big surprise is that, man, like, you know, we're all human beings. And when we think about what we need to live, like protein and like, and shelf stable protein, like, that's another one that I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've seen a run on that.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. And so when you look at the future, obviously, no one has a crystal ball. But it's really interesting to ask the same questions to all the guests to sort of get a perspective on this um, world that we live in through different uh, lenses. So you're obviously a a direct to consumer, you know, online first business. And um, there's the rest of retail that has winners and, and losers. And you have the, 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 the consumer at the core of all of that. It's the consumer behavior. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, anything that you feel you're learning about the consumer, their behavior, uh, whether the trends will stick? And West, the trends will probably flip back to the way they were.
0: This is a really great question. And this is a very important point. You know when we when we first entered the lockdown, it was anyone's guess. You know, like people were opining, you know, this is a one-time flip. Other folks were like, these folks are going to be sticky. Who the heck really knew? You know, like you just don't. Like we're going to unprecedented territories. Like um, now, though, seven months post the lockdown, we have seven months of consumer behavior data. Uh, And so what we're seeing is that the cohorts that have come in during the lockdown, um, these folks are uh, uh, by a factor of two the stickiest customers uh, that we've ever had in the history of the company. Um, and these folks, remember, this is not a 90-day thing. We're now seven months into this behavior, and this is, this is what we're seeing still. Um, and so we're not on the other side of this yet, right, Morty? So let's tack on another, what, three months maybe, maybe more before a vaccine is, 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 is not only prepared, safe, and actually well-distributed. So it could be that it, we're in this, quote-unquote, kind of uh, lockdown Semi-lockdown slash careful mode of consumers for a full year, and you know it doesn't take a full year of behavior for something to become a habit. And so it would actually be the opposite question: Will they break their online habit to go back in store? Yes. And what will stores do to try to have people break their online habit? I think that's where the conversation is is, uh, is going now. Overall, will we def- will we see some of that uh, behavior go back to stores? Absolutely, to a certain degree. I, I everything I've seen number wise numbers wise has shown a new elevated baseline though for the industry uh, the online industry I mean
1: mm-hmm. it's 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 a I think as I said no crystal balls but uh, it's it'll be interesting for us all to watch it and and also that translates to let's say the finance world because you know whether it's public stocks or whether it's investors in 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 businesses of all shapes and sizes how do you feel the market is reacting to various companies. And it doesn't necessarily mean to be vis-a-vis boxed, but in general, sort of the investment climate um, into consumer retail, there's again, haves and have nots, you know, um, there are some people who want to stay, you know, a 10 million miles away from some, some consumer retail categories, and then everyone's swarming others. What's your take on the investment climate right now and over the next year?
0: You know, I, I think, uh, I think when folks, uh, just even like earlier this year, were calling the death of retail, I think, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what was that famous saying? The, the rumors of my death have been fr- broadly... Uh, <laughs>
1: Over-exaggerated, yeah.
0: Um, it, it has become haves and have not, so you're exactly right there. I mean, as much difficulty as you're seeing with retail all around the world and around the country, you also get certain stocks and certain names at all-time highs of retail. Um, and, th- and some of these folks are brick and mortar. They're, I mean, they have, they're omni channel, uh, but they're primarily brick and mortar. And so it's certainly becoming have and have not. Uh, because again, I, I, this is not just me opining uh, on this. You look at the actual data, there's like a lot of retail stocks at all time historical highs. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think the folks that have the wherewithal, the team to invest into an omni channel offering that's compelling, they're going to do really well in this new environment. And then there's going to be some folks that just don't have the money or the team to invest into it. And that's who is going to really struggle, I think.
1: But what's interesting about brick and mortar there right now, particularly in the sort of changing of the guard or the pruning of the real estate environment in retail, it means that many more uh, brands and retailers will be able to afford certain locations. And the omni-channel nature of retail that we all know is actually kind of powerful, but it's not powerful if you have to... Pay a huge amount of money in rent and uh, rent to Sergey Brin and Mark Zuckerberg online as well. So you can't pay double rent, but yeah. but but, it, but in the right you know environments, omni-channel retail is hugely powerful if you can again okay. get those eyeballs. Is there ever going to be an omni-channel presence for Box? Do you think? Or I mean, obviously, I'm not asking you to make announcements, but academic, academically speaking, um, has it is it sort of toyed with?
0: Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I, don't think, I think what you hear a lot from Silicon Valley is a lot of hubris uh, of saying kind of anything that's older is, is either dead or stupid. Uh, I don't believe that at all. Um, I just feel like even look at your own behavior. Anyone listening to this right now, who listening to this right now buys 100% of their stuff in store? And who listening to this, the most Silicon Valley of, of, of Silicon Valley folks, they don't buy everything online either you know, they, they do venture into the Wild West of or the safari of, of brick and mortar retail, right? It's, so that's where we need to be at some point in time, whether we do it ourselves or partner. I think that will be the question, not, not if we find ourselves uh, with kind of brick and mortar distribution points. Um, on that point, though, the hilarious thing is that being a student of retail and looking back, it's like what's old, what's old is new again. Um, and when you think about fulfillment centers, uh, in the back and the front is actually a, uh, a a kind of regular consumer experience. I don't know if anyone shopped in service merchandise back in the day, uh, but it, it's like the this school, the this, this store where I bought my Sega Genesis like 30 years ago, um, and that's exactly what it was. You 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 shopped in the front, and then they fulfilled it out the back. It was like this conveyor belt that brought your goods up to the front of the store. And it's like, man, you know, like someone thought of that just like 30 years too too early.
1: Well, there we go. As my partner says, there's nothing new in this world. It just comes back in a different form,
0: right? That is so true. And in retail, I think it's, it's very similar. You could even all these last mile delivery services. It's like anyone that was around for Web 1.0 was like, yeah, I think that was called WebSand. You know, like that was called Cosmos.com. you know? And so um, uh, it just the business models have been refined and the consumer is ready.
1: Well, Shay, there's a lot of people behind you there who I, I, I think need you to get back to work. So I know I could speak to you for, for hours. Now I'm teasing. Um, but I, um, I I really enjoyed this, and I, I, I know everyone else will as well. Shay Huang, thank you so much for joining me on the Safari.
0: Thanks for having me, Morty.
1: If you want to learn a little bit more about traub you can go to traub.io where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do if you're enjoying the safari please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry and please also don't forget to subscribe and like it until next time